0: Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series from water infrastructure failures in Jackson, Mississippi, to a mega drought of historic proportions in California, water affordability is an emerging policy concern for an industry already facing huge challenges. Tune in as Brownstein's Jessica Diaz speaks to industry experts Jennifer Capitolo and April Ballou about how the issue of water affordability and fragmentation is playing out among providers, the potential and pitfalls that come with federal assistance programs, and the critical balance of providing affordable water without sacrificing safety or reliability. April Ballou is General Counsel and Vice President of State Regulatory Affairs for the National Association of Water Companies, and Jennifer Capitolo is the Executive Director of the California Water Association.
1: This is Jessica Diaz, and I'm a water attorney with the law firm Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck. I'm thrilled to be joined here today by two pioneering women water leaders. The first is Jennifer Capitolo, she's the Executive Director of the California Water Association, and April Ballou, who's the General Counsel and VP of State Regulatory Affairs with the National Association of Water Companies. The inspiration for this podcast was a connection I recently made with one of our guests at Brownstein's California H2O Women Conference, which brought together 170 women leaders in the water space in person here in Santa Barbara to share camaraderie, stories, ideas, and an incredible range of diverse perspectives. Jennifer Capitolo was one of our speakers, and Jennifer, you offered what I heard at least as a call to arms to our attendees to engage in both the conversation and actions regarding water affordability. So let's start this conversation with some background on who the California Water Association is and how they've engaged on the issue of water affordability over the years.
2: Thanks, Jessica, and thanks to Brownstein for putting together this podcast. Um, Also, thanks for putting together a really incredible Women in Water conference earlier this month. We just walked away with so much inspiration, both the women that we met and were able to network with in the room, but also all the incredible discussions that we had about the issues facing water going forward. Um, So California Water Association, we are a business trade association. We represent 94 drinking water utilities that are regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. That equates to uh, our members serving about 6 million customers in California, about 15% of the state. It's interesting because our water utilities are duly regulated, so we're regulated on rates by the California Public Utilities Commission, and they share that regulation of drinking water quality with the State Water Resources Control Board. We've been working on water affordability for many, many years, and it's sort of interesting because we uniquely have water affordability programs already in place. In 2005, the California Public Utilities Commission opened a proceeding and required all of the large water utilities to have these low income rate assistance programs. Um, It was really based off of programs that had already existed for many, many years in the energy industry. These programs have been very successful. We have pretty high enrollment, 80, 90% of those who are eligible are enrolled in these programs. But we've really gotten engaged in water affordability because it's not consistent across the state. So only 15% of California's residents have access to these low income rate assistance programs. And really the bigger issue for I think your listeners to understand is that our programs are structured through each utility. So what you have end up happening is you have certain geographic areas in California where that water utility only serves lower income customers. Counter that with other parts of the state where that water utility only serves higher income customers. And because we have fragmented programs, we have these areas where you don't have the right mix of customers to make a low income subsidy work. So we have low income customers being subsidized by other, a little bit more higher income folks, but still, you know, everyone in that geographic area is low income. And then in these higher income areas, you've got all these high income folks with not very many low-income people then to subsidize. So it really is a broken program. It's worked for now, but it cannot continue to focus like just on these locally-based programs. And we've really got to look for a statewide solution.
1: And April, you're engaged on a federal perspective. I'd love to zoom out from California for a moment and have you chime in on the issue of fragmentation in the water sector especially compared to electric and gas sectors. Talk about how does fragmentation on a national level affect the issue of water affordability?
3: Thanks, Jessica, and thanks for the invitation to be here. Before I get into fragmentation, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about the National Association of Water Companies, um, where I'm the general counsel. We are also a trade association. We are 125 years old. And our members represent regulated water and wastewater utilities that operate all across the country. And we provide water service to over 73 million Americans. So we really represent a diverse group of water providers from small to large, um, all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. And water affordability, or as we like to call it, water equity, is a really important issue to NAWC. And in 2020, when so many people were struggling due to the COVID pandemic, NAWC undertook a water equity initiative. And the goal behind it was to ensure that our members um, were really focusing on this issue and making sure that customers have access to safe, reliable, and affordable water. And as you mentioned, an important part of this issue is the fragmentation in the water industry. Um, As Jennifer mentioned, the water sector is unique And that is extremely fragmented, meaning there are so many different types of water systems all across the country. A lot of them are very small. And because drinking water is getting so much more complicated and expensive to treat and deliver in recent years, this means that many of these small systems are struggling to provide effective water service. And smaller systems don't always have the financial resources to adequately maintain their system and make the needed investments in infrastructure. And sometimes smaller systems don't have the financial resources or the staff to create and run low-income assistance programs. And this makes the need for either a state or federal water assistance program even more essential, because not every water system has the capability to do it themselves. And this also highlights that while assistance programs are essential to addressing affordability, there are other less obvious ways to address the issue, such as consolidating the water industry. Consolidating systems allows for economies of scale to properly maintain the system and create assistance programs and still keep rates reasonable. So it's important to really not just look at affordability um, in a vacuum and to consider other issues such as the fragmentation of the industry.
1: Thanks, April. And from a federal perspective, can you talk a little bit about the current landscape in terms of what financial assistance is available for water customers?
3: Sure. So Water affordability is such an important issue and it it really came into the spotlight during the COVID pandemic. And as we all know, water is so essential for life. um, And so helping customers maintain their water service is critical. And one important way to help struggling customers keep their service um, is through customer assistance programs. And as Jen and I have mentioned, um, many large water utilities have their own utility run assistance programs. But affordability is really an all-hands-on-deck issue that the utilities cannot shoulder alone. And so the water sector has been asking for help from the federal government for years to provide a low-income water assistance program. And finally, during the COVID pandemic, one was created. This is the Low Income Water Assistance Program, otherwise known as LIWAP. And it was created in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, And additional funding was added from the American Rescue Plan Act, and that brought the total appropriation to $1.1 billion. Now, that may sound like a lot, but really it's a drop in the bucket, especially when you compare it to LIHEAP, which is the energy equivalent uh, program, which provides assistance for home heating. And that's funded at $3.3 billion for 2022. And so not only is LIWAP funded at a lower level to similar programs, it is also a temporary program that was created in response to the COVID pandemic. And at this point, there have been no meaningful discussions for additional or permanent funding. It is scheduled to sunset in 2023. And this is particularly troubling given how much time and money and effort has gone into getting the LIWAP program up and running by HHS and by the utilities and for how many customers it has helped. So it is really providing an essential program for water customers across the country, and and it would be a real shame to allow LIWAP to expire just when it's becoming successful.
1: And April, I'm hearing there's so much fragmentation in the water sector compared to electric and and gas industries. There are these temporary or fragmented programs that then expire. Can you shed some light on the politics? I mean, why, why is equity and affordability so intractable in the water sector compared to energy, where we've had, I think, much more streamlined and universal programs to address some of these issues and, and provide more universal rate assistance for low-income customers.
3: I think that's a really good question. Um, I think for a long time, water has flown under the radar, and um, it is generally a pretty affordable service when compared to other utility services. But I think in recent years, you know, with the COVID pandemic and inflation, people are beginning to realize the real value of water. And so hopefully this new spotlight on the issue will help change that.
1: Jennifer, I think that's a good segue back to California water politics, so I understand the governor recently vetoed Senate Bill 222, which would have created a statewide low-income assistance program. Can you shed a little light into the politics of that veto, how we got here, and then how the water industry moves forward in terms of engaging on water affordability?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So SBT- 222 was a bill authored over the last two-year legislative cycle by Senator Bill Dodd, and it would have created a framework for a statewide low-income rate assistance program. The real big issue here with this bill getting moved through the process was that no funding stream was ever identified of how we would then go about providing this assistance to low-income customers. And the folks that were supporting the bill, and I have to say California Water Association, we were right there front and center supporting this bill. You know, we knew that the funding source was a challenge, um, but we felt like getting a framework in place of how this might work could really then motivate folks to have the conversation about the funding stream. And the governor's office, they were totally upfront and honest with us from the very beginning. Like, if you guys don't get a funding stream, it's going to be really hard for us to sign this bill. So I think going into it, I'm I'm not sure anyone was shocked. I think everyone was disappointed um, in the veto. But the governor's office, again, did make it pretty clear that it just You can't put forth a brand new program with significant costs without identifying a funding stream. And really kind of stepping back, we've been working on statewide low-income rate assistance for many, many years. This isn't SB 222 isn't the first bill that has moved through the legislature on this topic. It is the one that has gotten the farthest and had the most consideration. And I think that's really what we draw the attention to is that we are continually every year continuing to refine how this is going to work, working with partners to figure out how we'd put it into practice. And that's really at the Women in Water Conference I presented the day after the veto. So it was really interesting of like, oh, great, what do we do now? And I think what we have to do is we have to step back and really think about that funding source. And that funding source is potentially federal funding. The feds have been talking about it. I think April can chime in a little bit more about really that long-term look at US EPA, um, but we still have some struggles here in California. We do. There's folks who think that this program should be housed at the Department of Community Services and Development and that it should be a social services type of program where it's incumbent on the individual Um, rate payer or customer to be able to go in and seek that assistance, where there's other folks who think that the program should be ran by the water board and facilitated more through the water utility as the entity receiving the assistance to then go out and provide the discount to their customer. And that's where most of the tension lies right now is who should house this program and how should it be administered. And I don't want to make it seem like figuring out the funding source is easy because it's not at all. We've gone, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about a public goods charge, which is how the energy utilities do it. They charge other customers to provide the assistance to the customers that, that need it. We've talked about federal assistance. We've talked about state general fund. We've talked about, you know, some kind of box coming on your tax bill saying, would you like to donate you know, $20 out of your taxes for a water affordability program? Or maybe that box tick is on your water bill. A lot of other states have been working on this and looking at a whole bunch of different structures. But I think we will get there. I mean, we have to. Water, you know, it's the only utility you ingest. It's essential for life. We've really got to figure out how to make sure that everyone who should have access to water, has access to water, and they can afford it. It it is that important of an issue that we need to figure out our path forward on affordability.
1: So Jennifer, we've talked about the federal perspective and the need for a federal solution, the different governance proposals and solutions at a state level. But one thing we haven't touched on that I think is near and dear to my heart is where the so local water suppliers are caught up in this. I know your association represents the regulated water utilities. And in terms of all of the all of the state's local water suppliers, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that they face in funding affordability programs, Proposition 218, and the challenge that that they confront in terms of providing equity to their Ratepayers in the absence of any unified solution.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just from listening in on some of the arguments made by some of the public agencies, I, I think there really is sort of a, a split. It's kind of urban progressive districts um, and like, sort of the rest of the state. And they're always like We can all argue things on both sides, right? That's what we do in this world of public policy, be able to understand everyone's perspective. But for some of the folks, you know, Prop 218 is a a real issue, um, and it's really been hard to get reform. I think there are some districts out there that would like to see Prop 218 reform that could help them implement these types of programs. There are some districts that are just... They're they're implementing these programs and they're using non-rate revenue and their subsidies are not going to be at a level where it's really making a difference to address affordability, but at least they're doing something, they're trying something. I think, you know, getting state funding, whether that's general fund funding or some other source or federal funding, Prop two eighteen then doesn't apply there. But this issue of like should a water utility be and act as a social service agency, that's really tough Um, and it's tough for us as well for us as regulated utilities to figure out who should be eligible and who shouldn't and should we be the one who's making that decision and i'll just share a little bit about how we enroll customers and i think that can kind of tell the story of some of the advocacy work that needs to be done in this area so most of our customers are enrolled through data sharing so on the energy utility side they have a more robust process for figuring out if folks are eligible or not. So once a quarter, they give us their data and we automatically match up names and addresses. And if they match, we automatically enroll them in our water utility program. The Public Utilities Commission acted two years ago to grant that access to data to any public agency. So now any water system in the state of California can access that data sharing program through their energy utilities. The thing that's tough about this is if you really think about some of the other kind of buzzy issues going on in public policy right now, it's privacy and specifically data privacy. So this whole concept of just like sharing people's information to enroll them in programs, even though it's for a positive reason to give them a discount on their bill, that option may not be available to us in the future. And that's really how we get around being a social services provider. We're not the ones verifying that someone is eligible or isn't eligible. But we got a report, a request for a report to pass to this year in a legislation. It's SB 1208, and it requires the Low Income Investment Board, which is an entity at the Public Utilities Commission, to figure out how to have third-party enrollment. And third-party enrollment is being done all across different social services programs and they kind of equate it to like how many times do you have to prove that you're low income? Like, do I have to go all these, you know, five different benefit programs I'm eligible for? Do I have to make five appointments and bring all my documents five times and prove five times that I'm eligible for this? Or is there a way that we can have a single point of entry universal application that you can do this once and gain eligibility for all these programs? So we're seeing if that Third party verification universal application can be applicable to water utility programs going forward. And that solves one of the problems that the public agencies are presented with of how do we figure out enrollment for low income customers.
1: Jennifer, I'm really glad you brought up the issue of enrollment because even though the issues of data sharing can seem somewhat wonky, it also brings us back to the actual lived experience for the customer who's needing assistance and trying to figure out how they verify their eligibility. And on that note, thinking about the human impacts of the affordability and equity crisis, I'm obviously thinking about the recent tragedy that really hit home for water professionals in Jackson, where there is a failure of an entire water system on just an astounding level. And events like that obviously highlight this underlying issue of aging utility infrastructure that's reaching the end of its useful life and in need of replacement. April, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the need to replace old infrastructure impacts water affordability.
3: Yeah, thank you. And I can agree, as as someone involved in the water industry, that was a painful situation to walk, watch in Jackson, and your heart just went out for the customers in Jackson. Um, And so this is a really important issue to think about, the intersection of affordability and infrastructure replacement. It's tempting to think about water affordability in a vacuum. And when you do that, the answer can seem almost easy, which is just keep rates low, and that will help address that issue. But as we saw as the situation unfolded in Jackson, low rates are not a panacea. Um, Focusing on keeping rates artificially low often has other consequences, particularly with respect to deferred investment and infrastructure, which often results in water quality and reliability issues. What customers, I think, really want is drinking water that is safe, reliable, and affordable. So we need to focus on all three of these issues together—affordability, safety, and reliability—and make sure we provide customers with all of those elements and not sacrifice one for another. An important part of safety and reliability is making sure that we, as water utilities, invest in the infrastructure that provides the water. And unfortunately, the majority of the water infrastructure in this country is reaching the end of its useful life and must be replaced— And there's a steep cost associated with addressing these issues, which puts upward pressure on rates. And when you add in other threats that water utilities are facing, such as cyber threats and climate change and storm hardening, um, this can really, really challenge the possibility of keeping rates at an affordable rate. But we can't delay making infrastructure investments and addressing these issues because we need water that is safe and reliable. So that makes the existence of a permanent federal low-income assistance program even more essential, because utilities need to be able to charge the rates that they need to charge to address the issues to provide safe and reliable water, but there also need to be programs that help customers who may not be able to pay those rates. And as I talked about before, some smaller utilities or some utilities can't afford to to um, put in place these assistance programs themselves, so the federal low-income assistance program is really important.
1: Thanks, April. So, Jennifer, I don't want to close this podcast without addressing the elephant in the room that California and the West faces, which is whether we call it the new normal, permanent drought conditions, it is clearly something that seriously impacts water equity and water affordability. Can you tell us a little bit about how the water affordability challenges are further impacted by drought.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it it was really, I think, highlighted at the Women in Water Conference. We had some incredible panelists who talked about the need for groundwater banking and desalination and more recycled water and improvements to the State Water Project. And you really think about that, that's... Real money. That's billions and billions of dollars that need to be invested in our drinking water systems to make sure that we can keep water flowing. And the state alone cannot fund all of those water infrastructure projects that need to be done. And I think that's where we're going to have to see rate increases to address issues with a drought. And if we have to put some of these costs onto our rate payers, those rates are, are going to go up and we're going to have people, again, with unaffordable rates that can't afford to have this essential service. And I think sometimes people think about conservation programs and that who, who is really paying for all of those conservation programs out there right now. The rate payers, that's who's paying for these turf subsidies and these new, you know, showerheads and people to come in to do audits. But if you really look at conservation programs, it tends to be higher income people, homeowners that are taking advantage of these conservation programs. So it's just another way where the low-income customers aren't the ones receiving the benefit of some of the programming that we've got going on here during the drought. So even more, if we if we need to make these necessary infrastructure improvements, even what April talked about, just day-to-day operations and maintenance improvements to make sure that that water system is ready to serve safe, clean drinking water, then that's, that is going to impact rates. And if we need to do the work that we need to do to deliver that water, we've got to address water affordability.
1: Thank you so much, Jennifer. Well, some of these issues could be a podcast all unto themselves. Unfortunately, it's all the time we have for today. But I really hope that we can explore some of the other issues and ideas raised at our California H2O Women Conference in greater depth in future podcasts. Thank you so much to both Jennifer and April, and I hope that we as women and water leaders can continue the conversation around actions in the water affordability and equity space. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.